Our scripture today is from the book of Galatians, chapter 3, verses 23 through chapter 4, verse 7. This can be found on page 189 of the New Testament. Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. My point is this, heirs, as long as they are minors, are no better than slaves, though they are the owners of all the property. But they remain under guardians and trustees until the date set by the Father. So with us, while we are minors, we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Merry Christmas. As you have probably already surmised from our songs and our prayers, uh, we are fond of remembering and reminding that despite what retailers may teach, the church has not been worshiping in the season of Christmas until this week. It has been Advent, a time of anticipation. But today is the first and only Sunday of the 12-day season of Christmastide. And so I say to you, Merry Christmas. Let us pray. Our Father, we give you thanks that you have sent your word into the world. And we pray as we hear the witness to that word spoken afresh today, and just as Mary's womb would, was open to receive the word, so you would also open up to receive your word, that it would be formed and born in us, transforming us more deeply into the likeness of your Son, in whose name we pray together. Amen. Observing as we do this, this cycle of seasons in the church and reading and preaching as we do from the lectionary that follows those seasons, the question often arises, why this text? It wouldn't be here if it didn't in some way tell the story or assist in the celebration of the season. And you as I said earlier, you might have noticed all the songs and prayers seem to really fit into the theme of the birth of Christ that we're continuing to celebrate, but maybe the text threw you for a little bit of a loop. But as I look at it, this text from Galatians, you might immediately see what I saw. A phrase volunteers itself. God sent His Son, born of a woman. There's our Christmas cue quickly transporting us to a warmly lit stable surrounded by animals ready to hear a familiar story. And so, last week, 
After reading this text, since we had to have orders of worship printed rather early, given Christmas Eve, I hastily gave the sermon title as Born and sat down with a stack of books and began to study, expecting to find reflections on the mystery of the Incarnation, what it means that the second person of the Trinity became born of a woman. Out of the whole passage, however, I found that many commentaries spent the least amount of time on this particular phrase. One commentary in its 55 pages on this passage that we read has simply this to say about the phrase. The expression means to be born as a human being. Thanks. <laughs> what I found instead was a lot of much more specific information or even speculation about the situation of the Galatian church and the occasion for Paul's letter. So I guess we'll start there. You may or may not know this, but the, Paul's letter to the Galatians is something of a thorn in the side of New Testament scholars. It's hostility, brazenness, and bravado, not to mention some of its arguments, are somewhat embarrassing compared to his other literature, and leads some to propose that this letter represents Paul at his earliest and most immature, and that his thought is more complete by the time he pens a letter like his masterpiece to the Romans. It's also recommended that this letter be read for what specific thing it is trying to address and do not to extrapolate what Paul believed or taught in general about a given thing. The letter must be read contextually as a letter to the Galatians who are facing a certain situation or set of situations. As a brief side note, reading in this particular contextual way also helps free Galatians from a history of being used to fuel and justify anti-Semitism. Galatians has been read as a, a condemnation of the Jewish religion as legalistic and dead. This is a drastically irresponsible misreading for many reasons that I won't rehearse now except to say that Paul is writing as a Jewish Christian about Jewish Christians. This is an early internal dispute that deep down serves to demonstrate the continuity between Israel and a new revelation within the same covenant relationship between God and His people. So the main background characters occasioning Paul's letter to the Galatians are often referred to as the teachers. He refers to them as his opponents, and they're the main target of his frustration in the letter. From what we can surmise, a group of Jewish Christians were coming behind Paul into certain communities and teaching that belonging to the church meant observing Jewish law. They are, in short, evangelists like Paul, but with a different slant on the good news. Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, has come and fulfilled God's promise to Abraham and to bless all nations. They may have even taught that Christ's death was the ultimate sacrifice for sins, including the Gentiles into God's people of forgiveness and faithfulness. So far, so good. 
of course, if the Messiah of the Jews has come, and then the natural way to be incorporated into the people of God, to receive the Spirit of God, is to follow the law of Moses, God's own revealed way of life. The teachers are simply maintaining a rather sound and conventional understanding of what it means to be faithful to God, and even what it means for the Messiah to draw all nations into the promises and people of God. So, why is Paul so angry? What's his problem? Let's start in on chapter 3, where Paul begins with a bang. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. In the person of Jesus Christ, who is the promised seed of Abraham, God has invaded the world with a new faithfulness on behalf of both God and humanity. The rub arises when one takes seriously that the form of this faithfulness is offensive to the law. Christ's crucifixion, the very pinnacle of faithfulness, is an act cursed by the law. As Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 21, anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. Christ perfectly fulfills the law, yes, but also shows Himself cursed under the law. The teachers would smooth out the story of Christ to conform to their expectations. Paul insists that the Galatians allow Christ to upend the law and the entire old order that it represents. For Paul, what is crucified is not just Christ, but ourselves with Christ, as he famously says in chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And not only that, in 6.14, he goes even further to say, May I never boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the cosmos has been crucified to me and I to the cosmos. Paul's language is apocalyptic. The entire world that once existed, the world inhabited and taught by the teachers and governed by the law, is laid to rest with Christ. Something new has been revealed. Today is the final Sunday of 2019. We gather at the edge of a new year, a new decade. And at this time of year, many feel a sense of need for a renewed focus, a fresh start. From ancient times, we've even personified this passage of time as Baby New Year. Now, as Reverend Wortman already mentioned in his own home, and as you may remember, no fewer than three of our ministers, Dr. Er, Reverend Wortman, Dr. Longbonds, and myself, and our wives have welcomed newborn sons into their homes in the year 2019. Now, when we talk about birth and rebirth, in a religious sense, we often focus on some inward change or some spiritual cleansing. But speaking from recent experience, witnessing another actual birth, I must say that there's something much more obvious. Birth 
is a transportation into a new world. The newborn, emerging from the womb, suddenly sees, hears, and feels differently, experiences its body and the bodies around it differently, must hold itself and be held differently. It is nourished differently. It has a whole new identity, not primarily because of something that has happened within, but because it has been ushered into a new world, a new way of being. So maybe Christ being born of a woman is central, not to mention being born under the law. His birth begins a new world. And another birth of Christ is always in the background of Paul's letter, the resurrection. The whole Christ event, birth, crucifixion, resurrection, has revealed a new world and a new way of faithfulness. And we are born into that new world by baptism. Now, if you'll bear with me, I think we're ready to return to our passage and paraphrase. Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul's message throughout Galatians is one of liberation and freedom. About a half a dozen times in this and the surrounding passage, he uses some variation of the phrase imprisoned under or subject to or under the power of describing the old world. Before Paul came around, the Galatians may have worshipped gods identified with elements of the earth. These gods may have even been organized in contrasting forces, earth and air, fire and water, sun and moon. It is these that Paul may be referencing when he later says we were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. These may be the gods that the Galatians served before Paul came. And the teachers came after Paul, preaching that the way to be free from this idolatry was to worship the one true God through following His law. Once again, sound logic here. Don't worship creative thing, created things. Worship the Creator. We teach as much. Paul, however, seems dangerously to say that even the law itself is an enslaving element of the old world. In Christ alone is their true freedom. And the law cannot be used as a burdening requirement for those who are coming new into the people of God. This is not a freedom that makes us more independent of one another. It's often how we like to think about freedom. This is a freedom that binds us together. It is the freedom of belonging, the freedom of faithfulness and fidelity. 
in Christ, it is not only the elements of the world that are overcome. It is these same contrasting forces on the level of society and religion. There is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave or free. There is no male and female. In Christ, the whole social and cosmic order is recreated. And this is the new order into which we are baptized, born, and belong. Where there was once distinction and division, there is now only Christ, in whom the whole of humanity is gathered together as children of God. And so Paul can continue. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. Because you are children, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. Have you seen these videos? There are so many of them, I, I honestly had to, to stop watching. They might take place on a birthday or Christmas or Father's Day. Most of them look like they've been filmed on somebody's phone. All of them begin with a middle-aged guy sitting at a table opening a gift from his stepson or stepdaughter. There are jokes along the way, and uh, sometimes the stepdad plays to the camera, maybe a little bit uncomfortable with the special attention. And he starts to get into the gift and pulls the wrapping paper off and the bows, and inside he just finds papers. And a moment of confusion dissolves almost inevitably into tears as he starts to read and realize that the child that he has been raising, teaching, and caring for has given him adoption papers, asking him to finally become dad. One stepson included a note that his soon-to-be-adopted father read aloud, you're the one that I call dad, and I'm proud of that. The adoption is all set. Now let's make it right. If the Son of God has made all things right and secured adoption for us who are Gentiles, then who has bewitched us into believing and living in an old world of slavery and division. If God has become human, why do we still make distinctions between persons of class and worth? Why do we settle for comfortable prisons and counterfeit Christs? Who convinced us that the world is controlled by competition? Who provided us with the criteria of who is in and who is out? Who confused our cultural customs with the gospel? Who set our expectations for the way that people dress in church? And who taught us that Christianity has anything to do with adherence to one or another political party? Who enlisted us in a war between millennials and baby boomers? 
Who trained us to treat women so differently than men? Who caused us to splinter the body of Christ into so many sects? And who ever allowed us to feel superior to our Jewish brothers and sisters when we have been grafted into the same promise that was first theirs? Those of us with power and privilege, who put our minds at ease by telling us that we don't have to crucify any of that? that the poor and the powerless are supposed to live in our world? Who dazzled us with visions of Western wealth rather than visions of the kingdom so that we pity the one we see on the street and we envy the one we see in a suit? Who made our faith about a vague inward feeling or a specific set of pious habits rather than about the promises of God that have recreated the world? These questions, like Paul's, are rhetorical. So, let me return to one that is not. Why this text, the Sunday after Christmas? Because the birth of Christ as a human being begins the birth of a new age, a new world, a new freedom, a new birth of our own, by which we are adopted into the family and faithfulness of God. By Christ's birth, crucifixion, and resurrection, you are no longer slaves to a dead and divided world. You are children and heirs of God in His new creation. Merry Christmas.